You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the apostles. And then all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, please, as we sit under your word to rejoice at your word like those who have found a great treasure. Help us to hate false words and to love your true words. Help us to praise you continually for your righteous rules. Give us us the great peace that is promised to those who love your law and help us to hope more than ever in your salvation and and to be eager to do your commandments. May our souls savor your testimonies and learn to love them exceedingly as they speak to us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon. I'm Clint. Nathan's out of town. And last week, uh, he, he talked about his recurring dream of not being prepared to preach. I've never had that dream until this week. I think he must have like passed it on to me, except mine had some weird twists to it. First of all, it wasn't my turn to preach. It was Mason Banning's turn to preach. Like you were supposed to preach. And I remember walking up on this stage and, and you're at the keys and then you were like, I'm not quite ready. I, I have one page of notes. And I was like, Mason, you've got to be kidding me, bro. Come on. And so I was like, don't worry about it. I'll just wing it. So I step up here. I'm like, I'll just make something up. What is this about? And then through the doors, I see this like, uh, this, this, this flash mob prayer protest thing going on. I was like, surprise, we're all going to go do that this evening. So then I looked around and like half of you are already gone, which I don't blame you for at all. Um, but I have now passed, I think, successfully, the um, nightmare Mason Banning uh, not prepped for sermon challenge. And so now I would like to um, uh, nominate Kyle Stevens, who is preaching next week, and Mason Banning, since my nightmare was your fault, in part. And then since uh, Nico's nine-year uh, gotcha day was yesterday, I also nominate Nico Moore. So good luck, guys. I'll be praying for you. 
this week as you dream. I'll tell you this, though. We are never, as a family, going to Sadie's again because whatever happened on Monday night at dinner translated into... I, it took me three days to finish that meal, like, really, because leftover Sadie's are amazing. If you don't know that, go, therefore, and know that. But for some reason, I don't know if they were mixing something in. It's been a couple years since I ate there, and so I had vivid dreams three nights in a row. So we may never eat at Sadie's again, which is sad. Um, speaking of B-team, your intro is supposed to be about your sermon, so I'll start that part now. Today's sermon is going to be unpacking uh, sort of what the Spirit and the truth of Jesus did to the first people that it landed on, or the first people it bumped into. And if you are, uh, if you are comfortable in the kitchen, then maybe you could think about this sermon in, in two parts, the, the ingredients and the recipe and the whipping it all together, and then what it tastes like afterwards. So we'll have a first half of the sermon, putting it all together, like how did Jesus and his spirit put a Christian together? And then what does it look like when Christians just be Christians? Um, if you're less comfortable in the kitchen, maybe you're more comfortable in the lab. Um, our boys missed out this year, right, on, on dissecting a guinea pig. Were you supposed to do that last year? because of COVID in the spring. So they didn't get to do that. I never got to do that. When I was in seventh grade, we did a frog. And I think before that, we did a worm. Um, raise your hand if you dissected a guinea pig ever in your life. Wow. Only like three hands. Okay. Well, times are changing, people. Here's the deal. If you are more comfortable in the lab, then think of it as just opening up uh, an animal and looking at its parts and figuring out what, what put this thing together, how God put this thing together. And then even though it's in reverse order, the second half of this sermon is about like how that works, how that living organism works. How did Jesus put together a Christian, and what do Christians do once they've been sort of put together? So what we're going to see in the first half um, of this passage that we read, notice I'm rewinding a little bit back into part of the passage that Nathan wrapped up with last week. We're going to see this, that the spirit and truth of Jesus cuts into people, it calls people, it convicts people, and then it converts people. That's the first half. That's the ingredients. That's the dissection of, of, of this sermon. And then the second half is that new believers are committed, and they're collective, and they're consistent, and they are contagious. All right, so whether you're a baker or, or, or a bad animal opener, then you've got a, hopefully some framework for what we're going to see here. Verse 37, it starts like this. Now, when they heard this, this being the sermon that Peter just unraveled for them, right, for most of the chapter uh, two in the book of Acts, it cut them to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter just finishes up the very first Christian sermon. And now, after wielding this sword of truth, the truth of the gospel, it did what swords tend to do. It cut straight to the heart of these people. And Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, a double-edged sword, and it cuts to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It, it, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's exactly what's happening here when Peter preaches God's word. It's cutting into the soul's. No one can get away uncut. And having heard that their sin personally and corporately contributed to the crucifixion of Jesus, 
And that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promise, even some of them that they're anticipating by making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which most of them or many of them were doing. Once they hear that this is happening, they're wondering, we must be in trouble now. What should we do? Something is very, very wrong. Some of them Again, live in Jerusalem, and some of them have come from far away, walking miles and miles, but all of them have seemingly been cut to the, to the heart, to the soul, by Jesus' words about themselves. And now they know that something must happen. Something's got to change. So God's word in general, and the gospel more specifically, that we hear week in and week out here at Christ Church, and hopefully that you see week in and week out, day in and day out, as you read your Bibles, it's not, it's not as if God's word is a butter knife to just make us sinners feel better about ourselves. It's also um, not the icing on the cake of our basically good lives. No, it is a scalpel meant to expose the cancerous mass of sin living under the surface of our soul's skin. It is like an ice pick breaking the cold hardness that is built up layer after layer of year after year of rebellion, sin against God, and rejection of the warmth of his love. So now having been stabbed deep by the word, it's as if they finally hear this, this horn of, of, a, of a train engine coming down the tunnel, this dark tunnel, and they finally see some light growing in the distance toward them. They recognize something must change. And notice this realization of danger is not a self-initiated realization. It is a response to an outside force acting upon them, namely God. He's overcoming any natural resistance to the grace and the truth of Jesus. No sinner in their right mind, or, or rather in their wrong mind, would invite a sword into their soul for a look around. Instead, God must interject. God must make the action. He uses tools like people. He uses things like pages and ink. But spiritually, he is the one who does the cutting. He uses his spirit to give new spiritual birth. Just like Jesus promised Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. This is beginning to happen to them right here as we read it. We will see more and more clear evidence of this awakening power of the Holy Spirit as we continue on in the book of Acts. We'll see a Philippian jailer be converted on the spot. We'll see an Ethiopian who came to worship God hear his word afresh and the Spirit wake up his soul to believe. We'll see a woman named Lydia in Acts 16 whose eyes are open, whose, whose spiritual eyes are open to hear and understand and believe in the gospel. And if you are a believer today, it means that you have been cut before by God's word. The scriptures are true that on our own we do not seek God and in our trespasses and sins we are dead and insensitive to God. And if it's true that we are saved 100% by grace alone, then all the glory belongs to Jesus whose spirit and whose word cut. They cut across the grain of our souls to show us that we have been earning over and over the wages of our sin and that something must change. So I ask you, Christian, when did God first cut into your soul? Do you remember it? Was it slowly over time? 
Was it in a church service like this? Was it from a beloved friend who just kept telling you what they were learning from the Bible? Was it all at once for the first time? Was it at someone's dinner table? Have you ever been cut in your soul by God's word? Have you ever comprehended your participation in the death of Jesus Christ so clearly that it caused you to ask in desperation like these folks, what shall we do? So we see that the spirit and the truth of Jesus cuts. Well, the spirit and truth of Jesus, as we see in verse 39 and 40, or 38 and 39, I'm sorry, also calls. The spirit and truth of Jesus calls. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So in his answer, in Peter's answer to the question from the crowd saying, what shall we do? Peter gives a resounding, there's a train coming, get off the tracks, repent. Now that you see the tunnel, now that you can feel the tracks beneath your feet, now that you can hear and even feel the, 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 the deafening blow of the horn and the rumble of the engine and the train coming, get off the tracks, turn and run, Peter says. Repent is a word that Peter learned from Jesus. Jesus, in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 16, says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe so that you might enter into that kingdom. Repentance and belief are the way into the kingdom of God. And, and, and growing up, going to church my whole life, repent and belief were words that were thrown around a lot, but never really explained to me. So uh, in college, I started to sort of understand this idea of turning, right? Turning away from sin and turning toward God. But St. Clair Ferguson has been the most helpful to me in the last several years, and especially as I seek to try and help friends of mine who don't believe the gospel or don't quite understand it or have never responded to it, what exactly it means to repent. And St. Clair Ferguson says this. He breaks it down into three quick things. A new attitude toward God, a new attitude toward sin, and therefore a new attitude toward self. You see, before the spirit and truth of God cut into us, our old attitude toward God is that he's not real, or maybe he's real, but he doesn't really care, or maybe he's really, really far off. And that's okay with me, because I don't need him anyway. But the new attitude, once we've been cut, once we've been called, the new attitude that, that we're being challenged by Peter to have is that he is real. God is real. Not only is he real, he's wonderful. He's holy, and he deserves all that I am. That is the beginning of repentance. Then a new attitude towards sin, because the old attitude, before being cut and called, says sin is wonderful. It's satisfying, it's morally neutral, it's okay, and honestly, it's none of your business. But the new attitude towards sin that the Spirit gives us says sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly, detestable, disgusting, and it is eternally punishable. And then finally, repentance is a new attitude towards self. Because of this new attitude toward God, He deserves all we have, and He's perfect and righteous and, 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 and for us, and yet we have been against him in sin. We now know that we are not fine. We do not have this. We are not um, doing okay. We realize we need God. 
we realize, too, that we don't deserve God. Rather, we deserve his worst. That is the beginning of repentance, a new attitude toward God, a new attitude toward sin, and a new attitude toward self. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever heard an explanation of what repentance is. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever heard anyone call anyone to repent. I'm calling you to repent like Peter was calling them to repent. Perhaps you have a friend who's calling you to repent, or maybe you are a Christian, and the ongoing living for Christ is a constant repentance, a constant renewing of your mind of who God is truly, what sin really is, and how we need, and as Christians, have salvation. In short, repentance is the realization that God is good, that sin is bad, and that we are in trouble. It's this spiritual recoil and turning from the deadly danger of sin. And without it, no one enters the kingdom of heaven. And any true repentance that has its source in God's cutting and his calling work, it leads naturally to true belief, true trust, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, later along with, along with baptism, which I know is mentioned here, but it's going to be mentioned again later, so I'll talk a little bit more about it um, there. But for now, we've seen the Spirit cuts, the Spirit calls, and now the Spirit convicts. Verse 40 with many other words, Peter can't help himself, he's just a preacher, we've got to preach. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So Peter's sensing, even by their question, what shall we do? He's sensing some spiritual openness here in the people, and so he can't help himself. He preaches on, exhorting them, which means urging them, strongly encouraging them to save themselves, to be saved. I think here's where I and maybe many of you fall short in our evangelism efforts. Maybe we've touched on sin a bit in conversations with unbelievers. Maybe we've talked even some about hell. That is true and it exists and it's coming for those who don't trust, turn and trust in Christ. Maybe we've even talked about what that looks like in God's deserving wrath toward us. But have we given any sort of plea to them to do anything about it? Have we exhorted them? Have we strongly urged unbelievers around us? Peter is willing to strongly urge the people around him to turn from sin and to run to Jesus. Have we told and reminded our friends and family, like Nathan said last week, that this universe is headed for a cliff and it's getting closer and closer every day? No wonder anxiety seems to win more and more. No wonder hope seems to run out quicker and quicker. No wonder achievement, achievements in life uh, seem to fall short, whether they be for us or for our children, for our friends or for our family. All the things we long for seem to fall short. And the generation that Peter preached to is no more or less crooked than the one we find ourselves in. Both have fallen short of God's glorious design of love and goodness. And in our sin, our words, they are constantly full of hate. Our blood is full of substances. Our minds are full of the forbidden. Our streets are often full of violence. Our leaders in society are full of themselves and full of other people's money. And for honest, our homes are full of strife. Unless you believe the lie that there, that there are 
good old days and that those actually exist, sin finds new ways in every generation, every crooked generation to hide in the shadows, to laugh at us, to laugh at our city, to laugh at our families, to laugh at the nations. Because if we're not in faith, if we haven't repented in light of his cutting and calling and been convicted like these folks, then Satan still owns us and he is laughing at us all. Or maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm here at church, so surely, surely I'm fine. But remember that most of the crowd Jesus is talking to are either religious leaders of the day or folks who've made a religious pilgrimage, hiking miles and miles in order to please God by their sacrifice. And the crookedness of this generation that Peter's talking about, at least in part, is a reflection of their misplaced religiosity. So don't think that attending church, necessarily, week in and week out, does anything to make you right with God. He's not keeping score in that way. It's only this self-abandoning trust in Jesus that gets us anywhere and into the kingdom of God. So have you saved yourself from this crooked generation? Have you, have you called friends and family to save themselves from this crooked generation? We ask this Sometimes from the front here and often in our weekly email and hopefully frequently in your gospel communities and discipleship groups, but who is your one? Who are you after with the gospel? And are you willing to turn the corner and say, save yourself by trusting in Jesus Christ? It's an ironic phrase, save yourself, because the gospel is anything but saving yourself. All you can do is repent, put your trust in Jesus Who needs to be exhorted in your life, strongly encouraged, urged by you to save themselves? Maybe you're thinking, well, it won't come across as loving to the people I know if I speak to them like Peter's speaking to these folks. And you're right, they may not feel loved at first. And maybe they'll never feel loved by a challenge like what Peter's saying here. But but consider how they might feel in eternity if they're receiving God's opposition, his just opposition forever. I think they will have wanted you to Say these words. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Again, we cannot save ourselves literally, but Jesus can. So we ought to give up trying. We ought to give up our lying. And we ought to fall on Jesus because it is his spirit that cuts and calls and convicts. And finally, we see his spirit converts. Verse 41. So those who received his word, this is where we start getting into belief, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this verse takes us back to the other side of this two-sided coin, repentance being one side of the coin, this turning, realizing God is good, I'm sinful, I'm in trouble, sin is bad, and now I'm trusting in Jesus for salvation. And it's not Um, enough just to see the generation we're in and our own souls as crooked and to feel this changed attitude of repentance. In fact, repentance is really only the act of realizing we're in trouble. Belief is the act of trusting Jesus for salvation from the train that is on its way to break us. This is what it means when we see them receiving his word. This can't just mean they heard his words like into their ears. It's a given that they heard his words. They received them. They believed them as true. They believed that they applied to them. They believed that they could be saved by this. There's a 
there's a fun example that, that I've heard uh, a number of times. A guy named Charles Blondin, a, a French tightrope walker in the 1800s. Maybe you've heard this before, but he, he, he would tightrope walk across crazy things like buildings in downtown cities. And, and he, and he tightrope walked across the Niagara Falls one time and he's going back and forth on it. I mean, building everyone's confidence and cheers. And then he gets a wheelbarrow and he runs that wheelbarrow back and forth. And then he says, who here believes that I could uh, carry a person in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on this rope? And everybody's like, oh my gosh, dude, everything you've done so far is simple. I believe it. And then he's like, keep your hand up if you're willing to get in. And every hand went down, except for one. Turns out his mom was in the audience. She really believed such that she was willing to put her life in his hands to get him across Niagara Falls. So you see the difference between just sort of having this intellectual understanding of, yeah, 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 Jesus could save from this crooked generation, but actually putting your trust in him, putting your life in his hands, your soul and its eternal fate in his hands, knowing he's going to carry you across to the kingdom of God. Now, and forever. And, and, and to go on with our sort of train analogy, it's not just enough to trust in Jesus by getting out of the way of the train and letting it run by, but he wants you to jump on the train, jump on the train being led by Jesus, driven by Jesus, and picking up spiritual pace, both for this life and for the life eternal to come. Now the natural and normal expression of this repentance and this faith for new Christians throughout the New Testament is baptism. So here's where we get to baptism. The word translated baptism in the New Testament means to dip one thing into another thing. To dip one thing into another thing. And theologically, when a person, a human being, an image bearer is dipped or immersed into water, Paul tells the Corinthians that it is an outward symbol, an outward symbol or sign to the inward reality of how the gospel cleanses us of our sin. And Paul goes on to tell the Romans that when a human being, a repentant, believing human being is dipped into water and brought back up, it is an outward symbol of an inward reality of the unity of that sinner in the death that Christ took for that sinner and the new life that Christ gives to that forgiven sinner. And when Peter commands that they be baptized in this symbolic act, he's following Jesus' words in his own great commission that he gave Peter not many days before in the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Jesus intends for those who come to faith to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. It's like a pro-athlete. Um, has, he's, he's, he's been traded. He's signed the new contract with the new team. He's forsaken that old sinful team. He's repented of all of his sins. He is now joining up with this new team. He's signing the contract. And what do they do right away? They make him put on the jersey. Put on the jersey. You identify with this team. Baptism is like putting on the jersey. Putting on the jersey didn't magically make him a part of the team. But it's the outward sign that he is actually a part of the team now. Perhaps you've come to repent and believe, but you haven't been baptized. Folks, that's weird. And it's honestly wrong. We should be baptized. A new Christian should be baptized. If you've come to repent and you've come to believe, then follow P Peter's command. Follow our command based on the scriptures to be 
baptized. Identify yourself publicly with the people of God. Put on the jersey. And after that, we'll call you to get into the game. Be counted as a member of the team and the coaches, the elders, whatever you want to call us, and the players, other members. We will now count on you to give an account for us as we give an account for you. So we've seen the ingredients or this science cutting of the organs. And now let's turn to the second half and see what this meal tastes like. Not the science meal, the one you cooked up, uh, people who who are in the kitchen. And um, see how this organism works like in real life for the dissecting scientists among us. Verse 42, here's what we're going to see. That the believers were committed. We're going to see that they were collective and consistent and contagious. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's one of the first marks of a true believer that we see right off the bat, right here, as people are converted and are baptized and are added to their numbers, is this radical reoriented allegiance from self-determination, I know best, to Jesus' orientation. Jesus knows best. His teachings through his apostles. Away from this isolation and individualism, individualism to this risky partnership with other people, other broken and healed people. From this self-dependence to this sharing of, of a sacred meal regularly and ongoing meals together. This, and, 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 and this utter dependence and prayer together and for each other. So let's break each one of these down really quickly. Uh, These brand new Christians were committed to the apostles' teaching. So after having been cut and called and convicted and converted, now with the Holy Spirit living inside these new Christians, and therefore now by his power and grace, they have committed themselves. Notice it's, it's sort of, it's a, if you're a Christian, you know that it's, it's sort of reactive. It's a natural instinct to go toward God's word once you realize the truth that is in it. And yet, in this text, they are honestly devoting themselves to it as well. So it's, it's something that uh, comes naturally, but it's also nurtured in the Christian. This devotion to the apostles' teaching. Obviously, this apostles' teaching came straight from Jesus. So, so in many ways, it was, it, was, it was what is later recorded in the four Gospels of Jesus' life and ministry. It is what will later be recorded in all of the epistles, the letters that the apostles wrote to individuals and to churches. They are taking in God's word. They are believing it. They are, they are being in community around it. They are committed to fellowship. They're committed to his word. They are committed to fellowship. And this is not just Christians plus chips plus dip equals fellowship. That's not what this means here in this verse. This word koinonia in Greek, it it carries more of this mutually um, embracing of a, a risky yet rewarding venture or partnership. It has way more to do with like business ventures. Um, and going into business with someone than it does necessarily eating someone's homemade dip. And this carries with it this riskiness and yet also this rewarding nature that comes with the local church. It includes vulnerability. It includes openness. It includes, it includes sharing of time and of your talents and of your treasures. It includes focusing more on other people than yourself. It focuses, too, on mutual building up of one another. 
and the spreading out of God's goodness among God's people regularly. This is what they were devoted to. They're also devoted to and committed to the breaking of bread. And this article, the, the breaking of bread, it's really there in the Greek. And it indicates that it probably meant, it probably meant the Lord's Supper. So they were committed to the breaking of bread, this intentional remembering of Jesus' sacrifice for sins that brings this never-before-tasted unity to God's people who find themselves always needing God's grace and having it in Jesus Christ through his life and death and resurrection. And this implies, too, they were together. They came together and partook of the same bread. I know we haven't done that in a while, but we're talking as elders about starting that back up even later this month, even if it's just once a month. We'll see. Um, And maybe even folks who are on Zoom can be with us for that, even if it's just once a month. But we need to get back to uh, breaking the bread together and remembering the gospel in that way that we were commanded. Finally, they're committed to prayer. This, this self-reliance and pride and, and this unhealthy independence, most of us feel they are poisonous to the life of prayer. And I should know. But prayer is the anecdote. And these new believers have come to see that that they are utterly dependent upon God, both individually and as a group. And so they are committed to pray for one another and pray they do. When they are anxious, they pray. When they're tempted, they pray. When they're thankful, they pray. When we are confused, we should pray. When we're afraid, when we're joyful, sinful, growing, we should pray. There's never a time not to pray, which is why the scriptures exhort us to pray without ceasing. We do this on Sundays together as you're led in it. We ought to be doing this consistently in our gospel communities. We ought to be doing this privately at home in our own bedrooms. We ought to be doing this at our dinner tables. We ought to be doing this when we have meals with one another. The more we realize our existence and sustaining lives, both physically and spiritually, are 100% dependent upon God, the more we ought to pray to Him. And I want to give you some examples. I've asked around in the church for folks who are uh, displaying examples of what these first Christians tasted like. And let me give you some of those now. Honestly, I have more than I can share tonight. So if you want to send me some, if you look at uh, 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 Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, and you see things that are happening in your gospel community, you should email them to me or just reply to the weekly email. And we'll just brag on people that are around you. Um, It'll be great. That's what I'm going to do now. I've asked several of you for these examples. Patrick Gozier's relentless hunger and eagerness in sharing in the apostles' teaching, uh, I replaced the Bible with that because it's from our text, is incredible, this person says, as a member of Christ Church. Never a gospel community passes without him telling us what he's been reading and how it's impacted him. He has helped me read the Bible more, which sounds so simple, but I cannot thank him enough. Another member says uh, that Jocelyn Chun displays an extraordinarily diligent devotion to the application of the apostles' teaching. That is such an encouragement to me. Often she tells me of how she has read a passage of scripture and then how she is striving that very next moment to adjust an attitude in her own life. One more here, Chris McCown and Andy Warren. Especially during this isolated, these isolating months of COVID, they started reading, uh, meeting up, before work once per week in order to encourage one another and pray together. Both Chris and Andy are committed to the Bible in a year plan and to not only keeping up with it, but digging deeper to investigate and understand and apply what they are reading. 
And that consistency, the Southern member says, coupled with a desire to discuss the word with and encourage one another in it, have been so encouraging to me. And to prayer. Jesse Plowden is committed, this member says, to prayer and to how it impacts her and the lives of others. She's constantly talking to the women in her discipleship group about her prayer life and is mindful to ask frequently how she can be praying for the women in her group. So, just like Patrick and Jocelyn and Chris and Andy and Jesse, and so many more here at Christ Church that I have here on my sheet, these first believers were committed, committed to the Bible, committed to fellowship, committed to prayer, committed to the breaking of bread together. Next, we see the believers are committed, I'm sorry, are collective. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as as any had need. Now, if you're looking for a biblical endorsement of or teaching of or command toward communism or, or even socialism on a government or church level, you won't find it here. We know this because the selling of the possessions here and later in the book of Acts is, is, is a self-decision. Yes, it is being commanded to be generous generally and even towards specific things, of believers, but each believer must decide in their heart what they are to give. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And even way back in the day when, when Israel's wandering around in the wilderness and God intends to dwell among his people and he needs a, a tabernacle to do so, God tells Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive my offering from every man whose heart compels him. Yes, it is commanded by God to give, and yet we must be compelled and we must act on the compulsion within our own hearts to give freely and willingly. In fact, the church is part of God's equation for how people are provided for. And here's how it works. 2 Thessalonians 3 says that if you do not, eat, uh, you do not work, you do not eat. Paul's talking to some very idle and, and, and uh, very idle Christians who are not working, who are not providing for themselves. He said, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. Later, he tells Timothy that if someone is not providing for their own household, they're worse than an unbeliever. And finally, to the Galatians, Paul says to do good to everyone, especially the household of God. So you can see this, this, this flow of provision coming from within self for what you need, and God has created for us talents and, and time and, and, and abilities to go and create and, and love our neighbors ourselves and add value to the community so that we might earn for ourselves. And yet he understands too that hard times come upon people so that we can, can, can care for those of our household, and even of our extended family, and then the church can come alongside and help as well. It's part of God's design to provide. And friends, we've seen it happen up close a lot in this church. Listen to this. Carice Church is always ready and always eager to serve the body. She displays sacrificial generosity with her time and treasure by blessing people during both trials and joys, by baking goods, making meals, watching others, kids, and buying clothes and diapers when a foster kid, when a foster child gets placed at a moment's notice. And Michelle Stevens, her honesty with her own shortcomings makes her exhortations and calls to act in faith all the more compelling. She is always challenging us as a G GC, a gospel community, to support one another's needs, including one member's mounting and unexpected medical bills a couple years ago. 
and our ladies headed to the mission field. Michelle is always the first to help our family when we've needed it and quick to mobilize others to do the same. One more example here, the whole Winger GC. Earlier in the year, my backpack with a bunch of my possessions, my phone and wallet and keys and laptop and schoolwork was stolen from my car. The whole Winger GC came together and bought me a new iPhone. And special kudos goes to Andrew Ward, who organized, which sister is spelled with a Z, not an S, organized this, and who also gave me his old Mac laptop to replace my stolen one too. The whole experience taught me how much treasures always belong to God. I was pretty overwhelmed, she says, with their kindness and generosity, which pointed so clearly to God's love in a moment that was stressful and upsetting. What's happened or what we're being taught is happening in the book of Acts is happening right here in Christ Church. And we should all rejoice um, with one another and praise our God for it. We are committed people. These folks were committed. They were collective and they were consistent. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. Our time in our homes often become the thing that is the hardest to, 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 to open up. Granted, some families are, are full of extroverts and, and, and hosting people day in and day out, week in and week out, is just what they do. And some maybe uh, are, are more introverted and need a little bit more recharge and relaxation uh, to, to get ready for and build up toward that time. But in general, God's people are characterized by sharing what they have with one another. And this is true in the book of Acts and it's true here at Christ Church. Friends, don't let last decade's decor or last decade's dishes, or, or, or a perceived uh, uh, limitation on, on, on a shortage of, of square footage. Don't let the things that, that, that tempt us to, to think that our houses are only for us stop us from welcoming others into your home, to your dinner table. Of course, God gives different seasons and abilities to, our, to, to, to different folks and the ability to give. But this heart for giving to one another and sharing with one another should be growing and it is growing here at Christ Church. The Gozers, like the all-stars tonight. At, at, as a pair, the Gozers make leading others in their GC a priority. They just always make time for people. They're vulnerable in their own hardships, and that is such a blessing. Their honesty has made me less prideful and made me want to be more like Christ in how I, sh how I share my life around others. Their home is filled with Christ's love and the example they set for Beck and Evie. And their gospel community has been a blessing to us. Gail specifically is so generous, always ready to help in practical ways, always ready to pray, always ready to feed, always staying engaged relationally. So much of your time and much of your space at home was given to you by God to enjoy for yourself. And yet, many of us don't live like any of it was given to us to share with others are you eagerly sharing what you have with other believers around you? Are you consistently being with God's people and opening up your life to them? And lastly, the new believers are contagious. Not only were they praising God upward and being committed to one another inward, they are contagious outward. Verse 47, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now, first of all, 
it's understandable, I think, to all of us that the apostles would be contagious, right? 3,000 converts in one day, huge number, unbelievable. And yet we forget that the Holy Spirit is the one who did this. And the Holy Spirit is actually still doing this today. There are parts of the world, including maybe even our neighborhoods and our city, that you don't see a whole lot of conversions happening. It doesn't mean it's not happening at all. You think about places in the world like China, places in the world like Iran, uh, there, are, there is research that's been done, that the Pew Research specifically, came out in 2010, calculating roughly 68 million Christians in China, or approximately 5% of their population. Other independent estimates suggest it's way higher than that. It's 100 million or 130 million by now, or by 2010. And a professor at Purdue University said this, he projects that if modest growth rates continue, we're talking multiple thousands of converts per day in China, then they will have anywhere from 160 million to 250 million Christians by the year 2030 and be the largest Christian, quote unquote, nation in the world. Recent estimates coming out of Iran say that they're nearing a million Christians in Iran. This means that God's spirit is converting souls, cutting, calling, convicting, and converting souls over and over, daily, more than 3,000 a day in this world right now. The question just is, is are we praying for it to happen in our own lives? Are we contagious enough for it to happen in our own lives? These new converts, these 3,000 new converts tasted something they could not keep for themselves. They became contagious to those around them. For us, some of us have lots of favor with lots of people, lots of, lots of favor among unbelievers. Maybe you have a lot of unbelieving friends, but do you have courage and do you have clarity with the gospel? Are you, are you, are you saying it out loud? Are you calling them to believe in it? Some of us have lots of clarity and courage, but we don't have any favor. We're just mean with the gospel and rude with the gospel. Maybe we need to get better at loving people and building real relationships with unbelievers to where they'll be vulnerable with us and we can be vulnerable with them and we can tell them who has saved us from our sin. Are you building real relationships with folks who don't go to church, who don't know Jesus, who have never truly read or considered what the Bible says, who've never heard the gospel? Again, some examples of contagious people at Christ Church. Andy and Carmen Wirren have experienced some challenging circumstances in their extended family. Their approach to each one has been one of grace and desire to see their unbelieving family come to Jesus. They've used some tough situations as opportunities to share the goodness and the grace of the gospel unabashedly with several people, and they continue to look for ways to point them to their gracious God. Lydia Hallam is always building relationships and praying for and longing to share the love and truth of Jesus with people, whether they're in her family or friends or team or school. Her burden to introduce friends and family to Jesus is contagious, and I want to be more like Lydia. Then one more here, Patrick Gozier again. Goodness, where's Patrick? Are you here? He must be on Zoom, eating this up or crying tears. Patrick would share the gospel with a tree if he thought it might listen. Ever since I've known Patrick, he has been intentional with every friendship at work and at play to share the gospel with people who haven't heard it yet. And then this one too, Miss V, Miss S, Miss P, 
They inspire me to make my life count for the lost around me. If they can go to the ends of the earth to share Jesus, surely I can go to the end of my office, or the end of my neighborhood, or the end of my hobbies, or the end of my extended family to do the same. Believers were committed. They were collective. They were contagious. They were consistent. This is why we use words like worship, community, and mission. This is why we as elders and pastors and deacons and gospel community leaders use words like upward and inward and outward. You can see right here in this text that those who had been cut and called and and convicted and converted were then were then converted to something, to a restored worship with God upward, to a restored and new, really, family in community inward, and to a mission of contagious gospel sharing around them on mission. This is why we at Christ Church use these phrases, and we are always asking ourselves as pastors and working with, alongside your gospel community leaders to ask, are we leading you in these ways? My question to you now is, are you following us in these ways, individually and as a group? Are you praying for these things? Are you longing for these things? Where are you at with worship and community and mission, upward and inward and outward? Are you rocking and rolling with the Lord one-on-one, but neglecting the needs of other believers around you? Are you uh, always focused on other believers in community, but, but you don't think about or pray for or even know any unbelievers? Are you knocking it out with mission and community but don't really walk closely with the Lord in faith and obedience. These first Christians got off on the right foot here, but we will see as we keep going on that it is a delicate and difficult balance to maintain and that it needs a whole lot of grace when people mess up. And hopefully we have a whole lot of grace for one another when we mess up upwardly or inwardly and outwardly. And hopefully we're praying for one another as we strive towards these things. Why don't we pray now that we might strive towards them together. Jesus, thank you so much for sending your spirit, as we see here in Acts, for fulfilling all of the promises of the Old Testament to come, to bring your kingdom, to to, to restore to yourself, your people. Thank you for scooping up individuals, many of them who are in this room, and cutting them straight to their core calling them to yourself, convicting us of sin, converting us to yourself. Lord, please cause us to be committed to to understanding your word, to believing your word, to living your word, to sharing life with one another, to, to praying for one another, to sharing our stuff in fellowship with one another. Help us to be more consistent than we are in our hearts. Help us to be more contagious than we are now with our friends and our family members, Lord. Your grace and your goodness, your salvation and your gospel are worth all these things. And Lord, as we see them in your word, we long for them to be true of us as a church and as individuals. Lord, I give you praise and thanks for Christ church, for these people, for these believers who are already striving for these things. Lord, help us all to see it in your word, to strive for it more, and to glorify you more together. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, 
visit www.christchurchabq.com.